I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the news of the biggest airstrike on Ukraine since day one of the full-scale invasion. And later, we have an interview with Yaroslava Papieri, doctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham, who will explain how the illegal deportation of children from Ukraine is rooted in complex processes that started in 2014. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 29th of December, one year and 308 days since the full-scale invasion began. I started with the updates from Ukraine. Only one, one real story today. It's, it's the biggest, arguably the biggest of the year. Russia has launched a wave of overnight drone and missile strikes on at least seven Ukrainian cities. It's the biggest strike, biggest attack of its kind this year. Second only in numbers, we think, from the first day of the full-scale invasion. A nationwide air alert was put in place as drones and hypersonic, ballistic and cruise missiles targeted Kyiv, Zaporizhia, Dnipro, Kharkiv, Odessa, Lviv and Konotop, that last being about 200 k's northeast of Kyiv, all through the early hours of this morning. A maternity ward, educational facilities, shopping mall, residential buildings, commercial storage facilities and a car park were all hit Images on social media, you'll find them. They show the maternity hospital on fire. Reports there, no no deaths, injuries, and women in labour being having to be moved in an emergency fashion. Air raids are going off right now in Kyiv. Uh, just in the last few minutes, they've started going off. It shows all this talk you might see around the bazaars, shows how much Putin is quietly signalling that he wants negotiations. I think that's a load of old rubbish. He's very loudly saying he just wants to kill everyone in Ukraine. So let's have no more of that, please. So last night, the, um, these strikes, there were more than 20 missiles hit Kharkiv. That's according to local officials there. Authorities in Lviv, that's rarely attacked, over in the west, said one person died, eight were injured after 10 Shahid drones attacked the city. Four killed, at least 20 others wounded in Dnipro. In Zaporizhia, one was killed, 10 injured, and Odessa, two dead, 15 injured, three injured in Konotop. In total, so far across the country, we think 20 people confirmed dead, 118 others injured. We think 110 munitions were fired at Ukraine. And as I say, for comparison, we think an estimated 160 were fired on the first day of the full-scale invasion. Something entered Polish airspace near the border, about 100 k's northeast of Rezhov, the airfield, one of the, the main airfields where military hardware is flown into Poland, so right up on the border. Polish armed forces raised the threat level. We don't know for how long. I don't think it... Donald Tusk, the, the president, has been informed. I don't know if that threat level has been reduced. Yuri Inyat, Ukraine's Air Force spokesperson, said, we haven't seen so much red on our monitors for a very long time in all areas, in all directions. President Zelensky said today Russia used nearly every type of weapon in its arsenal, Kinjals, S-300s, cruise missiles and drones. Strategic bombers launched X-101 and X-505 missiles. A total of around 110 missiles were fired against Ukraine, with the majority of them being shot down. 
We will surely respond to terrorist strikes and we will continue to fight for the security of our entire country, every city and every citizen. Russian terror must and will lose. Later, Lieutenant General Mikhailo Olyshuk, who's the commander of the Ukrainian Air Force, said 114 of 158 air targets were destroyed, and that was made up of 87 missiles and 27 drones. Moscow came out with all the usual claptrap, which I'm not going to bother, I'm going to waste your time, which only those with porridge between their ears will believe anyway, although we've got the usual bunch in here coming out with all their crap. Feel free, lads, but tell me why you needed to uh, bomb a maternity ward first, and then I might actually look at you. Bridget A. Brink, the US ambassador to Ukraine, posted an image of air raid alert notifications on her phone and said, this is what Ukrainians see on their phones this morning. And as a result, millions of men, women and children are in bomb shelters as Russia fires missiles across the country. Ukraine needs funding now to continue to fight for freedom from such horror in 2024. Then Rishi Sunak, Britain's prime minister, he said these widespread attacks on Ukraine's cities show Putin will stop at nothing to achieve his aim of eradicating freedom and democracy. We will not let him win. We must continue to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. That phrase again, for as long as it takes. You've heard me say this before. It's good. But for as long as it takes to do what, Rishi? We need a bit more now, please. General Zeluzhny, he said, let's keep the sky... Let's Yeah, let's keep the sky... Sorry, let's keep the sky together to victory. I think that, in a nutshell, is the point here. As horrific as this is, in the vast majority of cases, air defence did its job. Now, that will be little comfort to the dead and injured and those who care for them, but this is an existential war. And if this is all that Russia can do and it seems that way, then Ukraine has shown that it can deal with it. Continuous support in terms of air defence and other military material is needed, but war is not about how hard you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep on functioning, and Ukraine is functioning this morning. So after Ukraine has shown the ability to use long-range strikes with such precision in recent weeks that it can sink ships and submarines hundreds of kilometres behind the lines, Russia is bombing maternity wards and car parks. Which either means Ukraine is just simply better at this air attack thing, or Russia is directly targeting civilians, a war crime, obviously. So any Putin fanboys out there, either on Moscow's payroll or not, care to answer me that one? Are, uh, is Ukraine just better doing war than Russia or do you like bombing maternity wards? Have a go at that then. Now then, as I said, it's going to be short, shorter today. David's still stuck up in the wilds of Scotland. We are off now until, what's it going to be, Tuesday, until the new year. So I'm not going to, in terms of, sort of final thoughts and stuff, there's only me here, so this is it. I'm not going to do a big what's going to happen in 2024. I think we talk enough about the issues, the context, the uh, myriad moving parts of this war for us all to have a deep understanding of the building blocks to be able to make our own assessments on that one. So I'll, I'll leave it to those uh, media outlets who, who nowadays only dip in and out of Ukraine every now and again to provide their audiences with easy, short attention span, condensed what's going to happen. I think you deserve to be treated better than that. But I have got a, I've got a couple of thoughts. I mean, people say, why should we care about Ukraine when we've got our own problems at home? And I can answer that a hard way or a soft way. First, the soft. I think if you have a correctly functioning moral compass, you have to oppose this 
disgusting display of the worst that humanity has to offer. I think it's just the right thing to do, no matter what the history revisionists might say. If you want the hard version, uh, it's this. If Putin wins in Ukraine, it will be our children and our children's children that will have to sort out the consequences and they may have to spill their own blood to do it. So what I will say about 2024, though, is I think it is extraordinary and in many ways quite unnerving how the direction of this war at the moment seems to be in the hands of so few people. A handful of politicians in the US, uh, Viktor Orban in the EU, small number of German policymakers, if you like. Come on, lads, let's make 2024 the year of Taurus. Leaders in China and India. Putin is so isolated in many ways, but is being thrown unnecessary lifelines, individually small, but together uh, enough to keep his head above water. So what do I hope for in 2024? Okay, for the sake of brevity, I've just picked two, two big things. First, an end to this idea that Putin would agree to a negotiated settlement that would endure for longer than it would take for him to rebuild his humiliated and broken army. He will see any calls for that kind of thing from the West as a sign that we really don't care about Ukraine and don't see this fight as setting the course for the 21st century, both in Europe, Southeast, South China Sea, elsewhere. He will use any pause as a springboard for future action. That's what happened after 2014. That was, in effect, a ceasefire, if you like. And guess what happened? We, we are now living through what happened next. So it's going to happen again. So let's have no more chat about Putin's interest in negotiated ceasefire, settlement, blah, blah, blah. He's not. Second, the external supporters of Ukraine need to get organised. Now, the Ramstein process is great for getting pledges of military support, but we now need a coherent plan for international industrial support, for sanctions to be tightened and routes for non-compliance, so the way Russia can get hold of sophisticated parts for precision weapons and the like, they need to be closed. Now, if you want to be hard-nosed about it, I want political leaders in the US in particular to make the point that most money spent on military support for Ukraine will be spent inside the US. And the same goes for other weapon-producing countries. We are completely in danger here of missing the win-win territory as we continue to try to take domestic lumps out of each other. So that's what I'm hoping for. End the talk about any kind of you know, Putin's interest in negotiated settlement and, uh, and let's move into this. We're in an industrial age of warfare, so we need to, need to ramp that up accordingly. OK, folks, I'm afraid that's it. That's all, that's all we got. Nice and short and sharp. Thanks for sticking with us in 2023. Thanks to our producers, Louisa, Giles and Rachel. Thanks to all our contributors, both homegrown Telegraph journos and, uh, and friends from outside Castle Grayshell. It's not about us and we couldn't do it without your voices, your stories and all your, your help. Thank you especially to you for listening and for refusing to turn away from this. You're good people and no matter how hard it gets, we are all stronger for being together. So let's get back together in 2024. If it's your thang, have a great New Year's Eve. Be safe, but don't be sensible. Dance like a Durnley and neck like a Knowles. From The Telegraph in London, I wish you a very good New Year. Chin chin. 
Recently, David Knowles interviewed Yaroslava Barbieri on the illegal deportation of Ukrainian children from Ukraine to the Russian Federation and the longer-term, deeper-rooted processes that started in 2014. Here's their conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Yaroslava. Would you just introduce yourself and your research? Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Yaroslava Barbieri. I'm a doctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham, and I'm currently in the process of wrapping up my PhD, where I focused on the involvement of Russian state and non-state actors in the occupied areas of eastern Ukraine and uh, Transnistria, which is a de facto state in eastern Moldova since 2014. Well, let's look specifically at eastern Ukraine. I've got in front of me your paper, Raising Citizen Soldiers in Donbass, Russia's Role in Promoting Patriotic Education Programs. Could you just explain why you wanted to look at this subject in particular? Of course. So this is actually taken from part of my PhD. So for me, it was important to explain that Many of those processes that currently are receiving media attention, such as the kidnapping, the illegal deportation of Ukrainian children from Ukraine to the Russian Federation, actually is rooted in much more complex processes that had started uh, since 2014. So the illegal deportation of children, in my view, is the logical consequence of these processes that have sometimes fallen under the radar of international media as scholarly attention. So that is something that I wanted to emphasize specifically because when you look more broadly at the processes of integration that Russia has promoted since 2014, actually we can notice that Russia and both state and non-state actors have acted in quite an ad hoc manner rather than following some grand strategic plan. But the one thing that they did systematically from the very beginning was a systematic indoctrination program. And like the Russian terms for it, Vaspitania, um, is actually a network of policies that were derived from Russia. So there is a number of policy documents that have been revisited since Putin's coming to power in 2000. And it's what's very interesting to observe when you look at the so-called state documents produced by the self-proclaimed republics is that it's pretty much a copy and paste process from the Russian documents. And that is sort of a direct indicator of the heavy involvement of Russian state actors. Let's get into it. You call it patriotic education, and there's three strands that you look at in your paper, military, historical, and civil. Could you just take us through all those three different terms uh, and explain what they are, why they're being done? And I guess it'd be very interesting to hear what this means on the ground. What are children being taught? Yeah, so these are not categories I came up with. These are some of the categories that I've identified as core in the documents that are coming out from the self-proclaimed republics. And I have to say that one challenge as a researcher is that many of the websites where these documents had been uploaded since 2014 at some point were shut down as part of counter-disinformation efforts. So I made sure to save these documents so that I could return 
return to these texts over time. And so there are some of the core strategic documents that outline the overarching objectives for these policies since 2014. And as I mentioned, the text between the two self-proclaimed republics and Russian state documents, it's pretty much um, almost the same. They just say replaced or next with Luhansk. And they identify these different strands that I think analytically it's useful to examine separately. But then when you look at them in parallel, you see the complementary functions that these different strands have. So I think... The first one that it would be worth examining in more detail is the historical one because it allows us to look at the broader discourse uh, that has been uh, promoted by uh, Russia since 2014 and it has been injected directly in the history school curricula in the occupied territories. So, of course, the overarching narrative is that this has been a civil war since 2014 and that there is a very consistent effort to frame the 2014 events as a act of national liberation against an aggressive Ukraine. And so Russia inserted itself in this conflict on the side to support the separatist forces. And so this is the overarching framing that allows the local de facto authorities to promote parallels also with the Great Patriotic War, which is how in Russia, World War II is being uh, described and it's very important to understand the distinct interpretation of World War II in Russia, where, for example, the chronology is not between 1939 and 1945, but starting from 1941. And that's important to sort of overlook the Ribbentrop-Molotov pact with the secret protocol that essentially showed how the two totalitarian states of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union had intended to split Europe into two spheres of influence. And so you know, overlooking this fact allows Russia to promote that consistent narrative of Russia stuck in this eternal battle with fascism over time. And so they draw this parallel between the war in Donbass in 2014 and World War II, the Great Patriotic War, and that a mechanism to glorify Russia's military history and draw parallel between the feats, the podvigi of separatist warlords and militias and Russian soldiers that then intervened on the side of separatists. Very quickly, what, what are the ages of the students being taught this? And does, does what they're being told change as they get older? Like, how does this work in the classroom? So this is actually systematic from kindergarten. So, of course, the curricula will adjust depending on age. But it's important to stress that the militaristic values and symbolism is actually injected in the school system from kindergarten. So you see, for example, and that leads me directly to the second strand of military patriotic education, where you see Russian uh, military officers, local um, officials from the de facto security or military structures, members of veteran organizations that come in the classroom starting from kindergarten. And again, it's about stressing this idea that the self-proclaimed republics are states. This is presented as a fair complete, and they are inevitably on a path to future integration with the Russian Federation. And so this is an interesting aspect, sort of analyzing this discourse targeting domestic 
audiences and how it was at odds, at least until uh, 2022, with Russia's state um, narrative in the context of international conflict resolution negotiations in which the original uh, objective was to reintegrate these regions back into Ukraine to create a sort of state within a state arrangement that would have allowed Russia to influence Ukraine from within, both in terms of domestic reforms and foreign policy orientation. So this heavy involvement of both Russian state and non-state actors in, in, in local schools is important, but it's we also need to stress the phenomenon of so-called patriotic sports youth clubs. And so this is the more explicitly militaristic expression of these patriotic education programs in which local youth goes through military training. You know, they are taught how to assemble, disassemble rifles. They are taught first aid training. They also have summer camps, again, where you have military officers both Russian and local, that organize the training sessions. The overarching objective of this more explicitly military strand is to create reliable mechanisms for training and recruiting the future officers, both of local military and security structure, but also those of the Russian armed forces. And that is very explicit, both at the level of local documents, for example, consistently there's this emphasis on the need to increase the prestige of military and security types of professions. And there is the listing of certain actors that should be the implementers of particular public commemoration events, such as that would coincide with certain Russian festivities, Mm. and also paramilitary movements, such as the Young Army Movement, which was established under the leadership of the Russian Ministry of Defense around 2015-16. And if you go on the website of the Yunarmia or Young Army Movement, you see that the goal of this movement that targets and enrolls students from nine years old until they're 18 is ultimately uh, for them to uh, join the Russian armed forces. And when you look at different coordination agreements that the de facto leaders of the self-proclaimed republics and Russian state officials including, you know, some individuals that tend to speak less of, but there are protagonists such as Andrei Kozenko, who is the director of the Russia-Donbass Integration Committee. And that was an institution that was set up in 2017, right in the middle of the process where Ukraine decided to impose an economic blockade on the self-proclaimed republics to essentially promote systematic integration processes with the Russian Federation. And what's interesting is that even the de facto leaders explicitly called patriotic education as a instrument of state management or governance. And that is one of the most important elements of integration with the Russian Federation. And then finally, sorry, there's the civic strand that you mentioned, and that is about exposing 
the local youth to state symbols, both of the self-proclaimed republics and the Russian Federation. So it's about crafting, creating a sense of civic identity, making them sing the Russian national anthem. So again, as I mentioned, we can analyze them as distinct strands, but when you take them together, you see the complementarity of these functions. And so it's about training the local military reserves and local security officers. It's about creating a reliable mechanism of training and recruitment. It's about creating mechanisms of mass indoctrination that are about promoting gradual alienation of the local population from the rest of Ukrainian society. And it's about imposing a sense of civichood that is incompatible with the rest of Ukraine. Do we know whether this is working? Do we have any sense of whether people believe it? What are your thoughts here? Well, I would say, of course, as a caveat, that it's very difficult to conduct reliable sociological research in the occupied territories. But, of course, this process, the potential impact of of these processes since 2014, you know, will have a very different impact on a generation where people were children in 2014 compared to people that might have been teenagers or young adults. So, of course, this is uh, something to keep in mind. I was actually a part of a research group where we conducted online focus groups with respondents in the occupied territories, and we were meant to present our findings on the 24th of February, 2022. And it was a comprehensive study on media consumption patterns and political attitudes in the occupied territories. And it was interesting to observe that many have expressed a sense of abandonment from all sides, from Russia, because even people that might have at the beginning been ideologically convinced by the whole narrative of Novorossiya and a promise of future accession to the Russian Federation on the precedent of, of Crimea was, of course, betrayed. There was a sense of abandonment from Ukraine that was not integrating the regions. And there was a sense of disillusionment with the de facto authorities that were associated with racketeering practices and authoritarian practices. So that grand sense of disillusionment is just symptomatic of a population that has been stuck in a war that we should always remember did not start in 2022, but in 2014. So I'd say that the overarching objective is still to make sure that this indoctrination is systematic. And actually, there are documents that were produced by the self-proclaimed republics in which they have admitted to themselves some of the mistakes that they did. So they were admitting that the impact of the indoctrination was not proceeding with the speed and impact that they had expected. But nonetheless, you see really systematic efforts to make sure that they are in this bubble in which they're really stuck in time. It's really a whole instrument to present Ukraine as the aggressive force, Russia as the liberator, and this idea that there was a whole history of a nation that had been forgotten and Mm. that the events of 2014, instead of being an aggression, were actually an act of national liberation. And of course, there will have an impact, especially on the younger strata of the population that had not had the lived experience as part of the Ukrainian state. 
you've sort of touched on this before in your answers, but what's your reading on the level of involvement of the Russian state, the Russian Federation in this? It's local officials within the self-proclaimed republics, but what's their level of cooperation? Are they imitating what they see in Russia itself, or is there active cooperation? Sort of, how do you see it working? So we know that, you know, there are high-level curators of the occupied territories that in 2014, it was Vladislav Surkov, which is one of the Kremlin's most famous spin doctors, and he was the ideologue behind the idea of Novorossiya. But of course, very soon that was sidelined because it contradicting the mechanism of subversion that Russia had tried to impose through the Minsk agreement. And so... Later on, he was replaced by Dmitry Kozak, who had more of a managerial role in managing the two self-proclaimed republics. But as I mentioned, for example, before, Andrei Kozenko, who is a ethnic Russian from Crimea, and he was appointed as the director of this Russia-Donbass Integration Committee. And that has been an agency that had coordinated alongside another similar institution, these processes of integration with the Russian Federation. And in these documents that are related to this group of policies, you see recurrently the a list of, say, veteran organizations. But also, you see interviews with some local representatives of the educational system that will tell you about the involvement, say, of individuals that have been responsible for patriotic education in Russia and were associated with the United Russia Party, which is Putin's party, and had close ties with some of the first leaders of the self-proclaimed republics that then were sidelined because they were perceived as too recalcitrant and independent, whereas the Kremlin wanted to impose control over these warlords and put on someone more obedient. So you see here and there explicit mentions of both Russian state and non-state actors that have in some way found their own niche of activity in the field of education. So I think it's important to stress both Russian state and non-state actors because it goes back to that point I was making that Russia did not necessarily implemented this activity as part of a grand strategy Strategy. So, for example, it's interesting to note the timing of some of these activities. So, as I mentioned, many of these documents related to patriotic education program policies started being published on the so-called website of these so-called ministries from the beginning in late 2014. But the establishment of institutions that would systematically oversee this process of integration, including in the field of education started, appeared in early 2017, that, as I mentioned, is that turning point where Ukraine decided to impose an economic blockade. And that was meant as, as an instrument of coercion to suppress, you know, the successionist aspiration of the self-proclaimed republics. But it was an instrument of pressure also vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia to send the signal that they would not cave into Moscow's demands, uh, the objectives of which were pretty transparent. It was really to create this Trojan horse inside the body of the Ukrainian state. So, but I want to emphasize that this coordination between Russia and state and non-state actors is interesting because, because it also allows us to look at the involvement of individuals that were ideologically committed to these ideological projects and the Russian state exploited their activism for its geopolitical objectives. 
if we could go as far as possible quite granular and say if we opened up a textbook that might be used in the schools what what would we see i mean do, do we have any examples of that are we able to see things like that so you know if someone is ready to get their hands dirty on these websites you can actually even find some google drives that they have not closed access to and the textbooks. So there are two categories. There are Russian textbooks that have been directly moved across the border in these so-called humanitarian convoys that we were reading about around 2015, especially. But then over time, they started also publishing local textbooks and the narratives that emerge from these textbooks really fall neatly under that strand that we call historical patriotic education. So these are the textbooks that uh, local school children would open during lessons in patriotism, lessons in courage, as they're called. And so the core narrative, as I mentioned before, is this idea that these are states. This is a a self-complete. Any period before 2014 in which these regions were part of the Ukrainian state are interpreted and described as a process of forced Ukrainization. And essentially, this is a period, say, uh, since to 19, between 1991 2014 mm. where these regions were stolen from their bigger motherland Russia and the historical evolution and destiny of Donbass as a nation as a state is described as inextricably linked to that of the Russian state and the Russian nation and so that is the overarching narrative that supports this indoctrination program because it's the narrative, you know, the interpretation of the present that allows to draw parallels to the Great Patriotic War, which is a narrative extremely influential in the Russian educational system and the broader media discourse, and also allows to then create within or attached to the more conventional schooling system, more explicitly military mechanisms of training the future recruits of military and security structures. So these textbooks are meant to raise citizen soldiers. That's the title of the article. But they're meant to essentially indoctrinate a new generation of Ukrainians that will be loyal to the Russian Federation and not to Ukraine. Taking all of this together then, what do you think this means for any potential future reintegration of these territories um, if Ukraine did prevail militarily? I mean, this is a very delicate question. Even the Kirill Budanov, the chief of Ukraine's military intelligence, has uh, emphasized this in, in a number of interviews that this will pose a security challenge because, of course, the situation in which people found themselves in occupied territories in 2022, it's very different from the situation of people that found themselves under occupation since 2014. Also, because uh, very often, you know, we even go back to these processes in 2014, but there's an even more complex history of subversive activities, both media projects and separatist local activities that push these narratives that the rest of Ukraine hates people residing in Donetsk and Luhansk, that they should both politically, economically, culturally be oriented towards the Russian Federation. And so these were all, it was a whole set of media mechanisms, educational mechanisms that were about 
laying the groundwork for more repressive mechan- indoctrination mechanisms that would become more explicit since 2014. So the overarching objectives is to restore Ukraine's territorial borders of 1991. And it's interesting looking at the evolution of Ukraine's diplomatic position, because if we remember the round of negotiations in Istanbul in March 2022, Actually, the question of Crimea, Austin occupied territory, had been postponed until for a decade in the future. The issue of Donbass would have remained vague because the point was to restore the status quo before the 24th of February 2022. But after mounting evidence of war crimes from the side of the Russian army, that became a point of no return that pushed the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian society at large to this more non-negotiable position of restoring control over all of the territories. And so hopefully when Ukraine wins militarily or gets to a point where we can open negotiation for the return of some of these territories through diplomatic means, it will become a challenge both in terms of security, but also of reconciliation. How can we restore the fabric of society that has been torn apart through years of indoctrination? Yaroslava, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important to say for our listeners? I think what I would like to stress is the importance of retracing, reconstructing some of these processes that have started since 2014, if not earlier, simply to draw attention to the fact that the things that we've seen since 2022 have a longer history and that some of these mechanisms that we've discussed today were sort of repeated then in the newly occupied territory since 2022. But of course, the objectives have evolved. And it wasn't just a matter of indoctrinating the local population, where the political objective, at least until late 2021, was to ultimately reintegrate these regions to essentially um, destabilize Ukrainian society in the long term and politically paralyze its westward integration. But of course, with uh, the Kremlin's decision to formally annex the self-proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics and later on Kherson and Zaporizhia regions, the same mechanisms acquired more radical, repressive functions such as identifying, rooting out disloyal, potentially disloyal citizens and it's explicitly now about cutting out, carving out these regions and the local population from the rest of Ukraine, breaking Ukraine piece by piece, both in terms as a society, as a nation. And what is interesting when you look at the structure of these indoctrination, patriotic indoctrination programs, you see that it's pretty much about stealing both Ukraine's past and Ukraine's future by targeting its next generations, essentially. Yaroslava, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your kind invitation. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We're also doing the same for what is unfolding in the Middle East. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.